Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the BYU Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Austin Lambert. Our mission here at the Life Science Museum is to inspire wonder, understanding, and reverence for our evolving planet. So with this podcast, we are here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, lsm.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. Welcome to the Why Life Science podcast. Uh, we're joined today by Dr. Rachel Buck and uh, Sarah Frutos, who you're a senior in environmental science. Yes, I am. I'm in my last semester right now, and I've been working with Rachel for about a little over a year now. Um, and I also work with Dr. Ben Abbott, um, who's been on this podcast many times. You're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I am, absolutely. <laughs> Counting down the weeks. Do you have plans for when you graduate? Um, not yet. I just secured an internship with the Timpanogos Special Services District, working at their wastewater treatment plant over the summer. And then I'm planning to take a gap year, just trying to figure out more of what I'm interested in, and then possibly do a master's. Well, that's exciting. Congratulations on finishing it up. A couple you. months to go. Yep. <laughs> and, uh... Rachel, do you want to introduce yourself and how long you've been a professor at BYU and how you got here? Sure, yeah. So I am a brand new professor here. I just started at the beginning of the semester and I did my undergrad here and my master's degree here in environmental science. And I've always been really interested in studying the environment and especially learning about uh, soils and and then on to wetlands. So we'll talk a lot about wetlands today because I love wetlands. Um, but I did my master's degree with uh, Dr. Brian Hopkins in plant and wildlife sciences. And then I went on to um, Utah State University and worked with uh, Dr. Michelle Baker, uh, looking at nutrient dynamics and water quality in Great Salt Lake wetlands and doing a lot of work at the uh, waterfowl management areas near the lake. I'm excited to have you because I did undergrad research with Dr. Hopkins. And now I'm doing a master's in geology and my advisor did a master's with Dr. Hopkins. So that's actually how I know Rachel is through Dr. Hopkins. There's like some relational, you know, advisor, graduate work. The research family trees. Yeah, there you go. The research family trees. very knit together, so. (laughs) Yeah, and um, I should mention also last year um, I did a postdoc here at BYU with with Ben Abbott, and that is work that was funded through National Science Foundation through a postdoc research fellowship in biology, part of that program. So a lot of the research I'll be talking about today was funded through NSF. Yeah, so maybe we can then start there. What was that research, and then why would an organization like the NSF maybe be interested in that? During my PhD work, I, you know, like I said, I was in those waterfall management areas a lot, and I was mostly doing work in um, these impounded wetlands, which are basically ponds that are important habitat for waterfowl. But while I was out there, I was kind of seeing what was going on in the more um, emergent wetlands where you have vegetation, more of typically what you would, I think, picture as a wetland in your mind rather than a pond um, that's important habitat for birds also. And what we have out there is this invasive species, Phragmites. And I just became really interested in this, just watching like all the treatments that go on and the like diversity of uh, like ways that they're trying to control this plant because invasive species have really had a huge disruptive effect um, on our environment. Like 
we've had like 50,000 invasive um, plants and animals in North America. And wetlands are especially vulnerable to invasive species because they have a downslope landscape um, position typically. And so they collect plant propagules and they collect nutrients and other pollutants and things like that. Um, just that makes them more vulnerable. And Phragmites is a plant that has been extremely successful in wetlands, um, especially here. And one reason we care about it so much is because the Phragmites comes in and it's this plant, you've probably seen it. When I learned about it uh, as a PhD student, I was taught that it you can recognize it at 60 miles per hour because it's one of those plants <laughs> you can recognize <laughs> when you're driving along the freeway. And definitely, there are plenty of opportunities driving along I-15 to see Phragmites. <laughs> so what um, makes it so recognizable? Yeah, so um, it's very tall. It's a tall reed, um, and it has this seed head at the top that's um, very soft. And so in in the fall and winter, you can see it has this golden brown color. So it's tall with this like large flowing seed, <laughs> seed head. And the stems are all very close together. And so you can imagine... When you have native vegetation where there's many different types of species, you have this diverse community where you have plants at different heights and kind of space in between where there's room for nesting birds and habitat and things like that. Then you get that replaced with Phragmites where it's all very tight, packed in stem, stem, stem. And Sarah can totally relate to this because when we were sampling last summer, we had to get into the Phragmites and it was Sarah's job. (laughs) It, yeah, it was like bushwhacking. There's, we have a video of a of me, and it's just this wall of Phragmites, probably about eight or nine feet tall. And I tried to go through it, and it just it stopped me like a wall. Put, really, I put all of my body weight on it, and it was just like holding me up. And it wow. was crazy. And once you see Phragmites, you'll never stop seeing them. <laughs> you, you, you'll look everywhere you look, especially on the highway. You'll say, "Oh, there's a Phragmite. There's a Phragmite." they're everywhere it is everywhere um yeah a good place to check too is like sometimes on the freeway exits kind of there's like plants in between the exit and the freeway and a little depression phragmites loves it there take a look there are they found just in utah or are they in other places too yeah all over Mm. all over north america so they came over in the 1800s from the east coast and made their way Uh. made their way across so widespread throughout North America. So you mentioned that there's a lot of different ways that they're trying to get rid of Phragmites. Mm-hmm. Are are you looking into like how effective those are or or what specifically yeah. with the Phragmites are you interested in? So I'm really interested in how Phragmites is affecting um, nutrient cycling and the microbial community. And so in the soil, we have all these um, bacteria and archaea that are performing important functions that help uh, reduce nutrient pollution. That's critical for you know, improving water quality downstream. And so I'm interested in how, first of all, Phragmites, the plant itself, how is that changing microbial communities and in turn processes that they're doing? Things like um, denitrification, which is taking um, nitrate, which is a nutrient in the soil that can be a pollutant if the levels are too high, and then converting it back to nitrogen gas, which um, is like 80% of the atmosphere. So Mm. a good place um, for it to return to. And so I'm looking at both how the plant itself is affecting the microbial communities, but also the different control measures. And so um, we went out and we 
uh, collaborated with land managers to figure out what kind of management techniques they're doing in different areas, and then picked 75 sites, um, all the way from Great Salt Lake to Utah Lake, that have kind of these different treatments. So these are things like um, spraying with herbicide, so uh, glyphosate, and also grazing um, with cattle. Um, they do burning to help and mowing to help remove some of like the dead biomass so that native plants can hopefully uh, come up. And so treatments like that. And so our sites have had a variety of treatments or no treatments. Mm. And then also sites that are native that have a, have been um, intact native communities. That don't have the Phragmites in there. Yeah. Okay. And so we're comparing... Um, basically like what nutrient levels are like in between th- in between those different groups, but also looking at um, the activity of the microorganisms. And the way that we can do that is by measuring their gene expression. So I talked a little bit about how microorganisms are performing like important functions for nitrogen. And I talked about denitrification. So for de- denitrification, bacteria use a specific gene. Um, and we know what that is. And so we can um, extract the RNA for this gene and see how much of it is being expressed. Mm. So like how much of the bacteria are doing this process that will tell us. We can see like the abundance of it. So if there's a lot of denitrification happening, I expect to see a high abundance of a certain gene. And so and getting back to like your earlier question, this is why NSF was interested in this research because how is the environment affecting which genes bacteria are expressing. For example, denitrification happens under anoxic conditions. So that's an environmental constraint on denitrification. Okay. And other processes would have different ones. Sounds like a big project, 75 sites. Oh my goodness. Very big. <laughs> Very time consuming. We've been starting to look at the soil samples and going through the process of drying the soils and then grinding the soils has been very long and smelly as well. <laughs> I, was, I was just about to ask, so in anoxic soil, how does that smell? Not good. <laughs> <laughs> the poor people down in the environmental analytical lab that we have in the in the basement of the life sciences building, we've been u- we use their drying ovens and so they were the ones that had to deal with the soils drying and those smells just seeping into the lab. <laughs> Rachel used to be the manager of the environmental analytical okay. lab. That's You're right. probably glad to no longer be in there <laughs> since uh, you out. left and now you've sent them all your smelly samples. Exactly. I got out just in time for them to deal with the smells and me to sit upstairs in my office. <laughs> so Sarah, do you work in that lab now or are you just working on this project? I'm just working on this project. I okay. also work in uh, Ben Abbott's lab as well. Okay. So we went out. It was a huge sampling campaign. We sampled each of the 75 sites three times. And when we sampled, we wanted to do it within a two-week window so that the environmental conditions were as close to similar as we could for oh, each wow. like, sampling campaign. And so Sarah really helped organize this whole thing and just arranging students to yeah, come. Yeah, the we logistics had, of that. I just took over Ben's lab and just... <laughs> said, you're now helping students. with this. <laughs> you're now part of Dr. Buck's lab. <laughs> right. Yeah, we just had tons of students. We went out in two teams and just did soil sampling. Sarah, do you want to talk about what we like? What kind of sampling we did? Yeah, so each site we uh, had our Rachel had gone out previously and had designated the sites right and had our area of of sampling. 
Um, and so, and within that area of sampling, we would do five um, spots of it, kind of in like a W shape, so we get an even amount across that area. Um, and we would do soil samples, water samples, and then we would also take a picture and take note of the plants that were right next to the hole that we dug to see what kind of plant growth is happening there. Um, and we also took um, live readings for um, pH and pH, salinity, the oxidation reduction potential. Yeah. yeah. Five holes at each site. Some soils that were filled with phragmite roots and plants that uh-huh. it was hard to get through um, and other soils that went through like nothing. So these sites, did you have them like plotted out or um, did you have to remove plants to create the sites or did you just put some kind of marker around what was there? Yeah, that's a great question. So our sites were actually 20 meters by 20 meters. And um, so we just marked them okay. like with our GPS app um, to keep track of where they were. And then we didn't actually have to modify it at all. We were just taking measurements of what was what was in place. I don't know. Some of the biggest challenges we ran into were probably walls of Phragmites, <laughs> walls of mosquitoes. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I don't know which one's worse. Mosquitoes. Oh, there you go. We also had issues with um, sinking into the mud. Um, You know, in some wetland spots, you can't tell if you're going to sink down maybe an inch or if you're going to sink down to your knees or to your your thighs. Wow. Um, And so that was an adventure. There were a few times students or even Rachel or I would get stuck and Mm. just kind of shout out to the others to come and help pull (laughs) us out. So are you wearing, I mean... Are you wearing just shoes, waders, boots? How do you go about this? Did anyone lose a boot in the uh, wetlands? Or <laughs> So everyone started out in waders, Rachel included. Um, and then Rachel got a hole in her waders. Oh. And so by the end of our, our sampling period, Rachel was just in like leggings and muck boots. and Just <laughs> like going for it. Just going for it. There were a few other students who, who did similar, who just went for it, who w- were even wearing just like sandals or socks because you're just going to get dirty and there's no way to avoid it. Uh, I stayed in waders the whole time because I didn't want to have squishy wet clothes or socks (laughs) but it did not save me from the mud I still got mud all up my arms on my shirt it was it was a messy job yeah it turns out that emergent wetlands are kind of dangerous place to have waders you know they're designed to be in like lakes and rivers and Uh. instead I'm tromping around through plants and there's thorns and they're just ruined my waders the wall of phragmites (laughs) is not nice to the waders (laughs) Definitely not. Well, so what's maybe the the funniest or a crazy field story? Because anyone that does field work tends to have good stories. It sounds like (laughs) wetlands could maximize this opportunity. You're both laughing as I'm asking this question, so... I have one, um, I don't know if I should admit this on a BYU podcast, (laughs) (laughs) but my group, um, we were done with our sampling for the day. We were at one of the waterfowl management sites up in northern Utah and I called Rachel and I was like we're done should we try and turn around or do we just follow the road out and she was like oh you can try and turn around you know if you follow the road out it's going to add 30 45 minutes and I said okay great and I was in this big (laughs) extra long um, bed truck 
on a <laughs> on a tiny road that was just like on an embankment so it was like drop off on both sides and I was like okay I, I can turn around so you start doing your 100 point turn and I went forward a little bit too far one direction and I got the truck stuck uh. the bottom of the truck was sitting on the edge of the road um and it was me and there were three other students and we all we're like, oh, no, we have to get this out of here. We can't call Rachel. We can't call Ben. We don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't want anyone we don't, to know. We don't want anyone to know. This is supposed to be – I didn't do this. What um, they don't know can't hurt them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so we just did lots of different things. I had the other sit in the bed to try and weigh it down. We <laughs> stuck rocks under the wheels. And then after we'd moved it a little bit, everybody else went in the front and pushed it. And it, just as it started to move, everybody got this like sudden burst of energy and we were able to push it oh, back wow. onto the road and get out of there safely um, <laughs> with no damage to the truck, I might add. The truck is fine. Um, there was no damage to BYU property. No. I was wondering exactly. if Rachel was just hearing this for the first time now. No. I, this is the first time I'm hearing the complete story. <laughs> <laughs> <That's great. laughs> yeah, but that's probably one of my favorite stories. Yeah, that's good. One of the things that made this a little tricky is that we're trying to take soil samples and then measure the RNA of bacteria. And RNA uh, is not stable. And so we carried around with us liquid nitrogen so that we could flash freeze our oh. um, soil, <laughs> soil samples for DNA and RNA analysis later. You can imagine, we kind of described the conditions. It's very mucky. It's hard to even walk. And we've got this doer <laughs> of liquid nitrogen and just we had it at one at one site and it accidentally got tipped over just a little bit it didn't dump out all the way but it just takes a little bit to see like when liquid nitrogen is spilled it's just <laughs> it looks very scary luckily no one was near it or no one was hurt <laughs> and it was very alarming that was probably the scary experience of field work for me just um yeah, see, but then that resulted in we would leave the liquid nitrogen in the truck and then we'd, you know, trek out to the, the site a ways away. And when I was with Rachel, I would be the one to take the soil sample all the way back to the truck, drop it in the liquid nitrogen, and then go all the way back to help her finish up the sampling. Um, and so that added extra <laughs> exercise and fighting through mud for me. <laughs> extra work. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like quite the good workout. Too, so. Oh, absolutely. Well, so it's this exciting environment. Uh, what are some of the initial findings that you've seen? I know you said you're just starting to dry the samples and analyze them, but perhaps field observations or just initial results. What are you, what are you finding from your research? Yeah, I mean, it's too soon really to say, like, you know, what are the effects of the different treatments or... Um, things like that. We haven't been able to get into that yet. But I will say, just from being out at the sites, one thing that's really struck me is how successful um, a lot of this Phragmites removal has been. And if you go to places like um, Powell Slough, which is, if you take University Parkway, just straight west, um, basically as far as you can go, <laughs> you'll get to Powell Slough. It is t really beautiful out there. There's a lot of very diverse native plants and beautiful wildflowers. I would highly recommend it, especially in like August, early to mid-August. It's just a beautiful time to be out there because they've had success where actually 70% of the Phragmites around Utah Lake has been removed. And so it's really cool to see just the success that they've had and the native plants um, that are there. 
because it's really beautiful. I think when we think about going to see wildflowers in Utah, we often think about going to the mountains. Right. Um, but you can also go to the wetlands. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Palsalu is a really great place to go for that. How were they removed in that spot? Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, spraying with herbicide. They spray from helicopter. Oh. Then mowing. Okay. Yeah. You have to have special equipment to get out there, like a, like a marsh master just basically on like tank <laughs> treads so you can oh wow get out there and not get not get stuck you would say that area is now healthy in terms of the plants like just okay. looking at what plants are there there's a lot of diverse plants and important plants like swamp milkweed which is important um species for the monarch butterfly and it's really beautiful but yeah we still have um our dna and rna analysis to do lots of analysis to do before we can really answer the questions about like our results, but um, we're looking forward to it. What about the birds at these areas? Do Phragmites and other invasive species, do they affect like the, the bird migrations? Because Katie is a big birder. I love birds. And we've interviewed some birders on this yeah. podcast, and so we, we tend to talk about birds. So what have you seen uh, perhaps with not just plants, but also animals? The main thing is I just feel like we have seen so many birds. Absolutely, yeah. It's really striking. Even just especially at these waterfowl management areas, it's such a great place to go see lots of birds. We saw lots of, what were the birds we saw the most? Sandhill cranes. Mm-hmm. Uh, blue heron. Mm-hmm. What were the little guys? The avocets. Yeah. Lots of American avocets. I mean, the Phragmites is not used as much by the birds as native plants. Yeah, there are a few birds that you'll see, like, They'll land on the Phragmites, and you can see them kind of standing on it. And every once in a while, you'll see a nest or something in Phragmites. But in general, we saw a lot more bird use in native plants like alkali bulrush. And kind of like you explained earlier, when the Phragmites is not there, there's just more room for nesting Mm -hmm. and and such Mm because they just take up all the space. And resources? Do they use a lot of resources too? Right. Well, especially water Uh. because if you think about it, it's such a – big plant and it has you know these big leaves that come out so it's using a lot more water um Uh than a native plant that's half or a third of its size a fourth (laughs) (laughs) well katie do you have any other questions about that no i don't think so one question though that i um that isn't really related to the research but i like to hear from our guests is this is kind of backing up a little bit. How did you get involved in science? Like when you were little, what made you interested in this at all? I can go first with that one. I would say just in in school, I've always been more of a numbers person rather than English or like history. I, I always loved math and, and science. And my dad, he has his PhD in chemistry. My oldest brother, he actually just defended his PhD dissertation today. Um, Whoa. And I like to think I got some of those science genes as well. <laughs> and I just remember in high school, there was just, uh, there's been a lot going on, you know, with climate change, um, with ocean pollution. And I just decided that I wanted to do something to help make a change. And environmental science is the way to do that. Help either on the research side or policy side, just help better the planet. Oh, that's cool. So it wasn't necessarily a specific type of organism that drew you to it. It was just... I see this need and I like science, so I'm yeah. going to go for it. Mm-hmm. So and your you career could, could go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which, which is a little daunting because I'm still not sure 100% what specifically I want to do, but there is comfort in knowing that it can go anywhere I want to. 
That's awesome. And at least for now, you're a mud on the arms kind of <laughs> absolutely, <person>. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, for me, I think I just always loved being outside. When I was in high school, the house we lived in kind of backed up to this like sort of nature preserve, um, where it had been owned privately and like the person who lived there had wanted to build like a moat around their house. And oh, interesting. Like, man-made pond, um, but otherwise forest. Um, that was really lovely. And I used to just sit out there and do my homework outside all the time. Where and, was this? Um, in Houston. Okay. Yeah, I grew up in Houston, Texas. And so I just really enjoyed that. And I always wanted to learn about like the processes that connect everything and make it all work. And I think also similar to Sarah, just um, with climate change and with all of the human disturbances on the environment, you know, whether it's like land disturbance and like habitat loss and things like that. I just want to help however I can, um, just because I really care about these ecosystems. That's awesome. That's what we're kind of finding as we've been recording these podcasts is that no matter what area of research you're working on, it helps to build that body of knowledge that says, we need to take care of this earth, basically. <laughs> no matter what little specific detail someone's researching, that's kind of the overall view. Well, thank you so much for coming to, to talk about this. I mean, it's it's important research. I'm shocked by the number of invasive species that you mentioned <laughs> yeah. that are here. And, and also just, I mean, how prevalent it is, the way it affects biodiversity. And we've talked about that before, this biodiversity crisis we're in and and so it's exciting to hear the research that's being done that connects to all of these important topics that uh, we've been able to address here. And, and uh, we're just very thankful that you've both come to, to share that with us. Yeah, do you have any last thoughts or words? Or Keep your eye out for Phragmites. You'll see them. <laughs> You'll find them. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity to be here. This has been really fun. And if anyone has any questions about wetlands, follow up with me. I'm happy to talk wetlands anytime. And yeah, don't forget to go toward the wetlands in, in August and see the wildflowers. It's definitely worth it. Well, and Rachel, you're, so you're starting to teach classes yes. in the fall. What are you teaching? I'm teaching ecology in the fall, just ecology. Oh, so, cool. Yeah, Bio 350. It's going to be fun. Okay, and if any students are interested in working with you, do you have research opportunities? Yes, yeah. So I have some upcoming projects, more wetlands-related work, and please reach out if you're interested. Thank you. Thank you so much.